Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. Yeah, you know, I was actually um, kind of interested in some of that stuff. I was listening to the, I don't know if you listen to Joe Rogan, but... He had uh, that Robert Oberhurst on a couple weeks ago, uh, one of the strong men, and he was talking about deadlifting and kind of how like deadlifting is this a movement that like if you're doing competitions, obviously if the deadlift is in the competition, you're gonna want to do it. But folks doing like explosive sports where the goal isn't to max out their deadlift, he was saying it's almost too dangerous of a lift to do. Which I thought yeah. was kind of interesting because I had always heard that the deadlift was kind of the king of the the leg lifts. I mean, I'm an endurance athlete, so I'm probably above or in the depths above my water talking too much about that stuff. But what what would you say about that? You're probably a little more in that world. Why don't I mean even for endurance athletes, mm-hmm. the deadlift can be phenomenal, but you just have to take a step back and realize you're not competing in the deadlift. Like you're competing in whatever your endurance event is. Mm-hmm. So what Oberst said that I agree with is, yeah. So when I was at UCLA, I, I, after I got my CSCS, I went to UCLA and did my athletic performance internship there. So we're going like football, baseball, basketball, all their different sports, tennis, women's golf, you know, just getting a flavor of like what it is to train athletes that have all these different competitions. And there's a lot of stuff that's similar, but the football team, you would have one day where you did a squat and then one day where you did bench press and a clean. And it was, you know, it was some sort of power clean. So the football team never deadlifted. And that's, I think the point that Robert was getting across, but for, for a lot of people, if you do a smart variation of the deadlift, that's going to help you in your sport. And even for endurance athletes, if we put you on hex bar deadlift and keep it safe and just make you really strong in it, you will get faster. Uh, one of the guys that works at Nike Performance started doing this with their marathon team as part of breaking two. They're trying to run a two-hour marathon, which is insane. But yeah, the the stronger you are, the farther you go on each stride. Like what you really want is the relative strength. So if you could, if you how, how much do you weigh? 150 pounds, 130 pounds, something. 140, about. Yeah. Well, I was right on it, 130, 150. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, okay, half the size of Sean Baker. Okay, 130. <laughs> um, for you, if you get your trap bar deadlift to, uh, you know, it's going to have to be more than two and a half times your body weight. So like two, uh, you know, 260 would be double your body weight. So a little more than that, like 300, 315. So if you can do three plates on a hex bar deadlift, all of a sudden that sort of relative strength propels you two inches further on every stride you take. Mm-hmm. And then how many strides do you take in a marathon? A heck of a lot. Yeah. So your, your stride rate 
is actually going to be the same. It's just they all go a little bit further. And that's the whole idea of that breaking two project is you just make these guys super strong. Well, su create super relative strength. Right. You can't make them any bigger. You just have to just make them stronger. Yeah, so power weight ratio. Yeah, so it's, it's ultra low reps because we don't want to add any muscle mass. We just want to make you stronger. And, okay. And, you know, back to what Robert Ober said is, yeah, the football team doesn't deadlift. It's bench press, clean squats, and then variations of those, like lunges, you know, it's single leg squat, which is really good stuff. But there's nothing wrong with doing a deadlift if you make it safe. So if the idea is I'm going to get a straight bar, put as much weight on as possible, put my wrist wraps on, cat back, you know, or my spine is totally flexed and disgusting and I'm herniating discs all over the place, that's pointless. So if you can get your back flat, maybe use the high handles on a hex bar deadlift. And just uh, if you ever use the alternating grip, the alternate grip on a deadlift where you have one hand over, one hand under. So as the bar is rolling out of one hand, it's rolling in the other. That's how you have to do it if you're lifting without straps. Well, all these power lifters have biceps that have popped out. Like they just pop like the, the tendon shears up and they have like no bicep left on the hand that they supinate. Because it's just so hard on your bicep tendon to hold that much weight with your with your arm outstretched like that. So if you use neutral grip, the that hex bar deadlift with your hands on the side, you focus on keeping your core tight, your back flat, and you're just working on pressing through the ground, that's great. So it's just doing it safe and realizing that your absolute max weight deadlift is not your competition, it's your sport is your competition. Yeah, no, that's interesting. And um, so with the hex bar, it's basically like going to just be a lot. It's just going to be a lot less of a learning curve from from the back health side of things from the straight bar. Because of the position yeah, it, it has you in the middle of it. Well, yeah, what, what it can do is make it more like a squat on the with the straight bar. You know, the bar path. The, the weight of the bar and the weight of your body, like everything has to stay balanced. Otherwise you're going forwards or backwards or the weight's not coming off the ground. So by being able to stand inside of the hex bar with your hands on the side, number one, you don't get that, that shearing from one hand over one hand under. Mm -hmm. um, you can, you can avoid that by just going a double overhand grip with straps. But if you don't have straps then you're just, if, if, you're, if you're picking up any substantial, you're not going to be able to hold it. Um, so number one, you take care of your biceps. Number two, because the bar doesn't have to stay in that straight line above the, because you don't, here's the thing with the straight bar, you have to move your body around and accommodate the bars straight path going up your book, up, your, up the front of your, with the hex bar, you can stand inside and all of a sudden you're in the middle and you're balanced without having to worry about accommodating the bar path. So safer position safer for your back you can create a more upright body um all around better the only there's no hex bar deadlift competition i mean right. it should be like if, <laughs> if you accepted that the, the the power lifting meets already have different bars you know they have a different bar for squatting or deadlifting or bench press so why not just have a hex bar and that would actually and the, the other thing about the the deadlift is that it's totally arbitrary that weight plates are 18 inches and if you think, oh, well, if it's 18 inches in uh, diameter, the radius is nine inches, so the bar is nine inches off the ground. Well, if Sean Baker's 6'5", and 
most other people are less tall than that. Like, why is everyone deadlifting from nine inches off the ground? So just bringing the bar up off the ground can accommodate, you know, different body mechanics. People have different leg lengths and the length of your femur to the length of your tibia. But you can get in a lot more comfortable position with bar. And then you can also move it up different heights that also accommodates you. And everyone is the lower you put that bar, the less strength you're, the, the less strength you're going to have at the top of the movement, right? Because, or that you're going to be taxed on at the top of the movement. If you deadlift or they call it a rack pull from above your knees, you can handle way more weight. So why don't I train the top half of the movement with more weight and the bottom half of the movement with less weight instead mm -hmm. of uh, the deadlift straight bars, a one size fits all thing. And the other thing you can do is accommodate the resistance. You can put chains on your trap bar or bands on your trap bar so that it's lighter on the floor and it's heavier as you accelerate to the lockout. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. Uh, do you know uh, Dr. John Jakish at all? No, I'm not familiar. Cause he, uh, we had him on the show a few episodes back and he made the, I, I guess he got like really into uh, like bone density and that sort of thing and developed some machine that can actually help stimulate that. And like, I think it was designed originally for like elderly people who weren't going to be able to necessarily go and put a lot of weight bearing load on their, on their bones. And it helped like kind of build that up. And then after that he got, I mean, he's like a, a full on bodybuilder himself. So he's really interested in kind of the training side of that as well. And he developed a, a product called the X three bar. And it's exactly what you just said in that same okay. philosophy where it's lighter at the base okay. He uses bands, but like his heaviest band can put up to like 700 pounds of resistance. So as you're kind of pulling up on it, it gets increasingly heavier as you elongate that essentially really thick rubber band. Um, and it's kind of an yeah. interesting, interesting concept because it's like it's really it specializes to that varying point of the lift and makes it heavier where you're stronger and lighter where you're weaker. Yeah. Well, I said I'm not familiar, but now that you say X3 bar, I've seen that and I think it's cool. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's and that's a sad thing is. And that's one of the things that I'm working on developing for the, the model for the gym that I'm going to open is there's all these cool sorts of things you can do when you have access to bands and chains. Um, I'm fortunate that I go to this little gym out here that for whatever reason has some cool stuff. You know, it's got like a jammer, like not a lot of gyms have jammers, but then I bring in my big gym bag and my whole gym bag is like chalk and bands. So I'll put bands on the jammer, bands on their other hammer strength equipment, uh, they have some uh, half rack power racks that you can band up your bench press or band up your squats. So I go to this gym that isn't really like a power lifting or athletic uh, gym, but it has an, enough equipment that if I bring my own bands in, we can do some really cool stuff. And the whole idea of that is that accommodating resistance is now you can accelerate. With all your other conventional lifts, if you just have weight on the bar, you have to, to purposely slow yourself down as you approach lockout. But if you put bands or chains on, it's getting harder, so you have to push faster. And that's a really great thing in developing athletes. Like if you wanna develop speed, you don't wanna be teaching your body to slow down when you approach full extension. You want, it's like when you're running, you want your stride to take you further. So you need to practice accelerating through full extension instead of, oh, I have to be safe with my joints. Like you try to bench press a light weight as fast as you can. And it's, you know, it's like locking out your elbow. That feels terrible. You're like hyperextending your elbow. It's pulling you off the bench. 
So there's like all this cool stuff that we just don't do because nobody knows. You know, mm -hmm. and, and I mean, nobody knows like maybe the probably know, but regular dude, oh, I just want to get in shape and go to the gym. Well, your workout would be a lot more exciting if you could introduce bands and change if there was like a progression. But if it's, um, you know, I had a friend years ago, it was like this male model in LA. And he just went to the gym and did three sets of 185 for six reps, every workout, LA fitness, same thing every time. And then it's like, well, no wonder going to the gym is pure drudgery if you're doing the same exact workout and burning your CNS in the same way every single time. You're not making any gains, but at least you still look good. Sorry, guys. Can you hear me okay now? Yeah. Yeah, you're coming in loud and clear. Oh, it's much better. Cool. Yeah, I, Who would have thought? I, I the iPhone phone is better. <laughs> just a damn computer and a microphone. I don't know what's going on. So anyway. <laughs> So I, what did I, what did I, what did I miss? Not, I'm, well, yeah, when you, we were just chatting about some strength stuff. We got into, I was just, uh, we, we were talking a bit about that Joe Rogan experience podcast with Robert Overhurst, where he was talking about how deadlifts are not necessarily ideal for, for athletes unless they're training specifically for the deadlift. And then we kind of got into kind of the mechanics of that versus a hex bar. And, and then we started talking about kind of like the, how how heavy weight is at the base versus the top. So we started talking about kind of the X3 bar and stuff too and kind of how that approach goes towards that stuff. Yeah, I've done all that stuff. <laughs> I've <done> that stuff. <laughs> we figured you knew already. He was educating me. Yeah, no, that's fine. No, I, 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 I use bands and chains for 20 years and I've done all that stuff. So been around for a while. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. Hey, uh, Chris, let me – did we get a little bit about your background? I don't know if we did just because I, I've, I've kind of caught – you know, I, I, like Zach, I've seen some of your videos and they make me laugh and I think there's some good content in there. And uh, But I, I don't really know much about you beyond that, that you've been on a uh, – and I don't know why anybody would want to want to sort of call out vegans for, for anything, but <laughs> – I'm just kidding. But, but no, what, what's, your, what's your background? I mean, my, my passion for health and fitness really started – in my childhood because in the sixth grade, my parents came home and they're like, oh, your dad has cancer and it's prostate cancer and it doesn't look good. And the doctors are giving him like two years and I'm a sixth grader. My little brother's a fourth grader. So just like something deep inside me was like, always like, I want to be healthy. I want to, you know, have a family. I want to be there for my children. And, you know, that was a huge motivating factor. Now, my, my dad battled prostate cancer. They gave him like two years. He made it six years. And I saw all of conventional Western medicine's flaws in the way that he was treated. He actually went down and did a bunch of like experimental treatments in Mexico and really defied the odds making it as long as he did. Like when I was a, a kid, I would go to bed every night and just pray that like, could my dad just be there for my high school graduation? And, you know, I was in sixth grade. So 12th grade comes around. It's like high school graduation day. And my dad had been feeling okay. But by this time, metastatic prostate cancer. It's like eating through all his bones. The last year he'd been doing like chemo and radiation. Like the, the only thing that he could stomach was like eating oysters at this little like dive bar in my hometown. Um, 
this, this, this restaurant was so terrible that people actually like celebrated on Yelp when it closed. They're like, oh, this place finally <laughs> closed. It's terrible. But it was like the one, the, like the one meal he could stomach was this awful like oyster stew. Uh, so he like looks in my eyes like so sad and is just like, buddy, I don't think I'm gonna make it today. So I go off uh, for my high school graduation you know, put the gown on, do the whole thing. The whole time I'm like trying to look around the periphery, like maybe he made it, like where's my family? And then to to have like a sober party, this is like 2006. No, that's my college graduating year. 2002, I was way off. Okay, 2002. Um, you know, they take all the seniors and we they put us on a bus and then we go to Lake Washington and we cruise around Lake Washington and have like a fake casino night. And then we go to, uh, go-kart pizza and this is so that you know no high school kids die graduation night and, and drunk driving but I didn't get back to school till the next morning check my phone my dad's in the hospital then from there it was like pretty two pretty quick like two weeks hospital so that's kind of like what launched me into the world of I want to find the way to you know be healthy I, I was obviously you know, it, it's not obvious. We haven't talked about this. It's obvious to other people that know me from my channel, but um, I was into health and fitness and sports and I just wanted to find a way to be healthy, to look my best, feel my best, be my best and spread that message. Um, and then if we fast forward to when I was 26, can you guys see her? Oh, yeah, we can hear you, Chris. Okay. Um, so that's really where my passion comes from is I, want, I wanted to figure out, like, how do you do health and fitness um, and really make it with a priority on health? And then fast forward a few years, I'm coaching football at a small college out here in Southern California, and I, I hurt my back at work, two herniated discs, and I gained, like, 50 pounds. So just the worst, most depressing time of my life. And it, it's not until looking back on it later that I realized that like at the time I was almost vegan. You know, my back hurts. I'm depressed. We're eating tons of pasta every night. And I developed like a two pack a day Oreo habit. All this like vegan garbage that I'm eating. And then once my back finally healed, I took the fitness program. It's called the TSC Heart of a Champion program. And I'd sent this to other people before, like very new on YouTube, like 2008, 2009. So 2009, when my back feels better, I'm like, I'll just do my own program and film it every day. And that's one of the first things that people tell me on YouTube was I put up this 70 day transformation where from the day after Thanksgiving, 2009 to the Super Bowl in 2010. So those 10 weeks, I lose 50 pounds of fat get my abs back, get my life back. And that's one of the things that kind of launched me on, on YouTube. I think that video has like 3.3 million views or something. Uh, and then it's just been a journey that I think, you know, a lot of people like your, yourselves can relate where you want to find a better way to do it. I know I've heard Sean talk about before, like, oh yeah, well I started experimenting with keto and then I found carnivore. And actually, I remember, Sean, hearing you on the Joe Rogan podcast, I was like, no, carnivore was going to be my thing. Like, I was, I was <laughs> like, just taking that 
I think actually when I'd already run something for my fans called like the Apex Predator Shred Fest because I found uh, Zero Carb Zen and was like, wow, this makes a lot of sense. So we did like a 28 day just meat and butter challenge. Uh, but yeah, that, that sort of journey of like, you know, what works, what works better. And what I've really landed on for myself and what I propose for everyone is it's about beasting and feasting and fasting. And I know, Sean, that you've put up stuff that's like, hey, is it really a lack of fasting that is the reason why we're, you know, fat, sick, weak, obese, or whatever? And I think that's absolutely not the case. It is not a lack of fasting. But, you know, for my, for my private coaching clients, like I do a lot of one-on-one remote training, is I always have to explain is that hunger means hunt. Like there is no breakfast in the wild and you have these pudding head vegans that are hungry all the time. And the real thing is that you put the easy stuff first. Like if you're going to beast and feast and fast for perfect health, for like metabolic excellence, if you're going to get as far from metabolic syndrome as possible is you don't start with fasting. Like that sounds hard is you start with a big meal of animal protein, you feast and then you go to sleep. And then you wake up and you're ready to train. Like you can work out, you can train fasted. And now you're ready to feast again. And then you just fast until you do those other two steps. And so it's, it's not a lack of fasting. You're absolutely right. It is a lack of animal protein, of complete protein. It is a lack of nourishment that makes it impossible to fast. It's crazy to talk to people and it's like, I, I can't even imagine going 14 hours without food. And that's the exact problem. Like you will never bring your triglycerides down to what should be a normal level until you fasted for at least 12 hours. So for me, it's beast, feast, fast, that hunger doesn't mean eat. It means hunt, which is something you need to simulate with the, the difficult training that you voluntarily endure, whether it's on the rower or with the running or weights or whatever you do. And that's what produces a great TGHDL ratio, great blood pressure, minimal visceral fat, and oh, great fasting glucose. So those four things that are all the components of metabolic syndrome, if you, if you count TGHDL as one thing, as a ratio. So those four things that are metabolic syndrome, how do we turn those on their head and make them metabolic excellence? And what I found is that's absolutely how you do it. And you see this nonsense on YouTube, like vegan gains burping and picking his nose on a two and a half hour live stream saying, oh, there's absolutely no benefit to fasted training. Well, all the energy you need for that workout is already stored in your liver and your muscles. And if you go empty that out, and I hate to do car analogies because I think they're, they're oftentimes silly, but there's no point in filling a tank that's already full because you just have to spray gas in the trunk and the backseat and everywhere else. So empty the tank, reload the tank, and then drive that car around. Beast, beast, fast every day. And if you want to, you know, one of my favorite carnivore guys out there, William Schufelt, actually started on my beasting, feasting, fasting program in like 2017. And William Schufelt emailed me his photos. It's a 10-week program, 70-day program. He emailed me after eight weeks and was like shredded out of his mind on beasting, feasting, and fasting. And that wasn't even full carnivore. That was like a low-carb-ish keto approach. 
So that's what I want to do is help you guys spread this message that it all starts with being nourished. And once you're nourished, then you can fast, then you can train harder, then you can do all these things that promote metabolic excellence, that cause metabolic excellence. So Chris, do you think like one of the reasons that people sometimes struggle with fasting is because they're trying to put it in this like very specific time window and then they're not necessarily nourishing themselves before that? Because like I think of like what someone would maybe consider a normal size meal and like I'll look at that, I'll be like, well, that's maybe a third of the size of the meal that I would actually eat. So it's no wonder you can't go more than two to three hours after that without eating again. It's like, you know, have a couple ribeyes with some butter on it and all of a sudden like you won't want to eat again for a few hours for 12 plus hours well, yeah, depending there's, on what you there's so much conventional nonsense um and a lot of it stems stems out of like 70s bodybuilder like oh i've gotta eat every two to three hours so i just have this small meager unsatisfying low-fat meal and then it's like well of course you want to eat two or three hours later and then even worse, like the food companies know how to get you addicted. They know how to keep you coming back on that blood sugar roller coaster, how to spike your blood sugar and crash it again. So the whole day you're like cereal, bagel, uh, $5 foot long, five hour energy, food, you know, like, and, and really the simplest level to give it away to everybody is just fast for 14 hours a day. Like if you want a simple prescription for looking your best, feeling your best, being your best, having metabolic excellence. Feast, absolutely. Complete animal protein at dinner. Fast 14 hours before you eat again, do some sort of workout, like deplete some ATP. You know, tick down that cellular energy. So there's, you know, whether it's your liver or your muscles, that there's some place that we can start thinking about storing more glycogen. I mean, because that's really what type 2 diabetes is, is it's not, it's not we can't, oh, the insulin doesn't work anymore. We can't get any more of the sugar into the cells. It's that the cells are already overloaded. You know, the, the cell of an obese person is a hoarder's house. And now the hoarder's got stuff out on their lawn. That's the bloodstream because you just can't fit anything else in the front door, the windows or the chimney or wherever you're trying to cram it. So depletogen and then in that workout, you damage and deplete. So you're, you're breaking down muscle tissue and then you get amino acids and you can take those amino acids and do gluconeogenesis and refuel your glycogen. You could have some limited carbs, but you can then refuel. The problem is that we never use the fuel we already have. That's what obesity is. It's a, a crisis of fuel toxicity. We just have, we're just have gas everywhere. Gasolina. Now for a word from our sponsors. What are you doing with that X3 bar? What's your experience been so far? Yeah, it's uh, it's been great so far. I've been using it quite a bit at home. It's saved me a couple trips to the gym. I've been mostly doing deadlifts with it, and I've actually brought it on a couple trips with me too because it's pretty easy to throw in, uh, into a rolling duffel and kind of bring with you on the road. Yeah, I mean, I found particularly the deadlift, um, you know, I've been a pretty decent deadlifter, and, you know, I pulled over 700 pounds, and I know when I use this big orange band that uh, – it's pretty tough. It, it actually, for a band workout, it definitely simulates the heavy lifting. I think you're right. It's uh, very nicely suited for travel, for sure. It's a good, uh, certainly accessory exercise for many people. And I think a lot of people can use it as their primary uh, training tool, depending upon what the goals are. But I think the key I found is you've got to use it as designed. And that includes 
uh, really pushing to failure. And when you get there, you really know it. It definitely gets your heart rate up, even though even things like biceps curls, I find my heart rate jacked up after doing that. So I think I've been pretty impressed with the product overall uh, in certain situations for sure. Awesome. And uh, Dr. Jakish has a uh, poster that comes with it that gives you a kind of a breakdown of kind of the moves and different lifts that he addresses with it too. Head over to x3bar.com for products, videos, and training programs. Now back to the show. Yeah, I think I think the whole fasting thing is really interesting. And I, I get asked that question quite a bit because I think people assume since I'm on a high fat, low carb diet, more or less that I have some form of intermittent fasting or long fasting included in that program. And um, I would probably be more structured with that stuff if it weren't for the training side of things. And what I tell people and feel free to poke holes in this because I'm just kind of spitballing a bit here, but like, I sometimes look at it more as like an energy expenditure and as opposed to like a timeline, you know, a lot of people will do like this time restricted eatings or every once in a while they'll do a long fast, like a 24 hour fast. I try to look at it in the terms of how much energy am I expanding between meals or between uh, fueling. So like if I go and do a huge workout, you know, I might burn what I would sitting around doing nothing in two or three days in one day. So I try to be kind of mindful of that when I'm thinking of like how long I go between meals and ultimately I'm intuitive about it. I don't like hold back from eating if I'm hungry and I don't like force myself to eat if I'm full or anything like that. But um, is that something worth considering if you're talking with someone who is kind of similar to me, who's putting in just a lot of kind of cardio and a lot of um, aerobic type activity? Yeah. Well, I think that, you're going to auto-regulate on your hunger. You know, like, I know that, like, yesterday, went to the crush this killer 45-minute leg workout, got out of the gym, and then was, like, ravenously hungry and came home and just stuffed myself with complete protein. Mm -hmm. So I just, you get to auto-regulate auto on those, like, your hunger, your, your ghrelin automatically ticks up the harder you work out. And what I'm really trying to, what I, the, they, the idea is, is that you create a daily routine. Because the thing is, in our society, all habits are bad. Habits are these things that are ingrained that you do automatically. And, and you end up for failure if you just go on habits. Oh, I drove by the Mickey D's, I'm feeling hungry, I pull in the drive-thru. So instead you have to interrupt those habits with deliberate daily practice. And that means creating a routine that serves you instead of relying on these habits that don't serve you to get through the day. So I would, you know, a 14 hour daily fast is something that you can program as part of a regular day. You know, we know that complete protein, nourishing ourselves with real food, getting a good night's sleep, waking up, and then you're probably going, you know, I don't, your workouts might vary, but it'd probably be helpful if your workouts were about the same time. And you could repeat this routine, this beasting, feasting, and fasting cycle to stay lean and healthy. And, and yeah, you can absolutely, and this is what, what I would do personally is if there's like a big lift day, like I want a one rep max bench, or if I was actually competing in something that was really important, which I don't like Beverly Hills co-ed slow pitch softball is not really important, <laughs> but you know, there's cases where, yeah, I would eat before, you know, a big bench press day, for that specific bench press day. Like I really want to hit a new one rep max, but 
every regular bench press day, um, I'm not going to do that because the healthiest thing is beast feast fast. Like there's no reason to trigger the insulin or trigger uh, your parasympathetic nervous system with food before you go to the gym. And I understand that you can get better performance, you know, like just Gatorade or Red Bull in itself is a performance enhancer. If I train like for, for you, if you're very low carb, high fat doing endurance and all of a sudden you pop a couple of like sugared up Red Bulls before your race, you're probably rocket going, fuel. That? <laughs> it's rocket fuel. <laughs> right. Yeah. But it's rocket fuel. So that's what I'm saying. Like every regular day is beast feast fast and then every day you need the rocket fuel pop the rocket fuel but every day shouldn't be a rocket fuel day mm -hmm. yeah you know I, that's what i tell people a lot of times i feel like um with sports performance and stuff we've started to look at the performance day as the everyday um and i mean this is just wonderful marketing as well by some of the supplement companies where they want you to take their goo or their sports drink every 40 minutes or something like that and um and I tell people to look at it more like you would caffeine. Like if you look at it like caffeine, you'll probably find the right ratio of what's going to help you when you need it versus like piling on when you don't need it. And the example I usually use is like if I would routinely drink a cup of coffee a day in the morning and then all of a sudden introduce a second cup in the afternoon, I'd have a little extra energy that day. But if I was routinely drinking five cups of coffee every day, you know, I'm going to get very little like return on that. And it's just going to be like piling on and I'm going to make it less potent. So what I've noticed kind of when I've, since I've been doing like a high fat, low carb approach is you really just sharpen up the effect of that stuff where I can fuel with about half of what I would historically as a high carb athlete and get kind of that same energy pop when I need it. So it's like the same return for half the investment essentially. Yeah. Well, beasting, feasting and fasting, like being healthy is really about making yourself more resilient to everything. Like if you're a person that's like, ugh, I can't even move across, you know, I can't even walk out to my car until I've had my cup of coffee. If that's your life, you're, you're, you're very fragile. You know, like if I can, you know, drive out to the airport, go to Seattle, do a three-day business trip there, work out every single day and come home and I didn't pack any food and I fasted the whole time, and I get home and all that happens is I went from 9% body fat to seven and I felt great the whole time. Like I'm incredibly anti-fragile. And that, that's the real problem is when you're riding that blood sugar roller coaster, you are fragile. You're a fra fragile little baby that you huddled with, you know, another snack or a juice or something every two to three hours, or you get cranky. And like, that's not how you want to live your life as an adult. And that's what, real nourishment does is it makes you less fragile and the 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 more we can create a routine that makes us healthy and makes us less fragile i think that that's the direction we want to be traveling in um yeah you guys want to oh let me, let, yeah let me let me let me jump in there I, you know i agree with you know generally what you talk about and it's very similar to what kind of what i've kind of you know i've been talking about for quite some time now um do you find, and I think this difference a little bit, I think, you know, we always have to make the distinguish between the average person just worried about health versus, you know, a highly competitive athlete that's really worried about maximum performance, whether they're trying to put on muscle or 
win some event or something like that. So we have different, different frames of reference for different people. But I find, and you know, for me in particular, uh, as I sort of inhabit that, that, that latter category, somebody who's always been an athlete and always trying to push myself, you know, there's a little controversy in this sort of low carb, zero carb carnivore world about what's the most efficacious approach for uh, fat loss. And, and, I, and again, I think it becomes a little nuanced, but where do you fall on the sort of the high protein versus the higher fat approach? I just want to, I want to see what your experience and success has been uh, with, with regard to those two topics. Well, I think for efficacy, uh, who's got the puppies? No, that's fine. Um, for efficacy, for like getting shredded, actually, I, I saw your post recently where you're talking about leaning out is it's beast, feast, fast. And I think if you look at the most carnivore or carnivore adjacent or meat-based person out there, it's, you know, my former understudy, William Schufeld. Like, did my program, introduced fasting, was still keto at the time, got incredibly shredded. Whenever I crank it out, like, I can crank up the eight-pack whenever I want, with the, the complete vascularity. And I think what you have to do to lean out is absolutely prioritize animal protein, complete protein, and crank that up to, like, 50% of your diet. And if you're at 50%, then the other 50% really doesn't matter. If you go 50% carbs, long-term, you'll crash your hormones because you'll be so lean and you won't be getting any dietary fat. You're going to have trouble producing testosterone. And just, if you didn't see my YouTube video, my test on the last test was over a thousand nanograms per deciliter at 35 and a half. So feasting, feasting and fasting definitely works for that. And just incredible libido. Um, but yeah, to get lean, go to 50% protein. Absolutely. And then that last 50%, you can definitely do it on pure animal fat. So that's 100% meat diet, 100% carnivore. And I also want to interject, I love the idea, and I, I think, Dr. Baker, you should definitely do a t-shirt of this, is not carnivore, only meat-based. So that way we stay away from like, oh, carnivore, it's the, it's the dogma we need to succeed. We're just as pudding-headed as the vegans into, no, we do what absolutely works. Like, I don't. I don't feel bad about having a glass of wine. Even the tigers in the zoo love having watermelon on a hot summer day. That's true. Google tiger and watermelon. So uh, bodybuilders know how to do it. They get shredded 50% protein, 50% carbs. You can get just as shredded 50% protein, 50% fat. And, you know, it's a, uh, this bodybuilder thing where you need to eat six times a day, every time you eat, you're just temporarily stopping your body from burning fat. You're only ever actually burning the fat on that bodybuilder diet when you finally go to sleep and don't eat for eight hours. But you've, you know, you've cut back and you're just slowly starving yourself. Instead of slowly starving yourself, just optimize your hormones. So you get to eat that big, delicious, nourishing meal, cut the ghrelin down, trigger the leptin, feel satiated, be nourished, go to bed, wake up leaner, go to the gym, get extra. And Dr. Baker, for you, like you will be shredded, beasting, feasting, and fasting for six weeks, 14 hour daily fast, your workouts in the gladiator pit already are gnarly. And it, and you know, like I have zero love for Lane Norton. I think, you know, 
what he says just isn't helpful, that it's all about, it's all about the macros. Have as much fructose as you want, as long as it fits your macros. Like that's idiotic. The whole thing comes back to your hormones. How do we eat to get the hormones that we want to create the body, the health, the physique, the strength that we want to have? And the thing is, you eat the, the unlimited fructose. And you say, Dr. Rhonda Patrick, you don't really know what you're talking about. I'm Lane Norton, PhD. And if anyone questions my PhD on Twitter, I will write you a dissertation just on how I got my PhD. It was very difficult. So you cannot just say, oh, it's, it's just the macros. You need to nourish yourself. It's not about just the caloric deficit. It's about how do you create a caloric deficit? Do you create a caloric deficit by optimizing your hormones, by turning off your hunger, by eating more beef, by fasting longer? How do we create the caloric deficit is the key. You know, and like the, the, the calories, once you start thinking about like bioavailability, like it all gets way too murky. The question is, what can we do to get the results that we want without just backsliding? Like we can put you on a hundred different diets right now that will all cause you to be just worse a year from now. But if we create a daily routine that is sustainable and then we just titrate that a little higher, maybe we crank the protein. So with beasting, feasting and fasting, you just make little adjustments to those three things. Obviously sleep is a huge priority, but I can change my workouts. I can change the way that I beast. I can be more glycolytic. I can be more aerobic uh, with feasting. I can crank the protein up. I can crank down the ice cream or whatever the foods are that aren't helping me, but I can titrate that. And then with fasting, I can certainly like 14 hour daily fast is totally effortless for anyone that eats nourishing food. You know, like, yeah, absolutely. If you were eating sugar right before you went to bed, you're going to wake up and be like, I need fruit loops for breakfast. Um, another, another thing that I like to tell people is all breakfast is purely uh, a marketing gimmick. It's like Arnold says in the Game Changers. Oh, me, that's all marketing. No, breakfast, cereal, high fiber, that's all marketing. It's the food for surfs. We give you a, some barley so you can go work out in the field all day. In reality, hunger means hunt. Go hunt, you beast, so that you can feast, and then you fast until you do it again. And Dr. Baker, please, beast, feast, and fast with me. You and I can do a six-week challenge, 10-week challenge, and we will get shredded out of our minds. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, Chris, I, I don't, I, I certainly can get lean, you know, when, when I want to, it's, it's, and it's similar. I mean, I, I, I did that, you know, several times over the years. And so it's, it's just, uh, um, you know, you get to a point at some point where you don't want to be 8% body fat, you know, you, you feel better at 12% or 14% or something like oh, that. Well, so, without, a, without a doubt. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a, you know, personal preference type of thing, but, um, you mentioned the barley thing, and I know one of the things that the vegans like to talk about were the gladiators, the quote-unquote barley men, and I think that's something that's a, a little bit of a humorous uh, topic, you know, because, you know, we realize that these people were fed a slave diet, and one of the one of the reasons they were they ate that way is so they could have more subcutaneous body fat so that they would, when they would take these sword injuries, they would have some protection so they wouldn't get any you know, visceral injuries, and so it's uh, it's kind of cute that they, they, they think that the, the the reason they were fed barley is because they were better to make them more fierce. It made them, it just basically made them more fat. That's basically what that did. Well, but, uh, whether you are talking about 
of grain-fed gladiator or grain-fed cattle. These are, are two specimens that are strictly being fattened for slaughter. So you're totally right. Look at like the actual study that James Wilkes is going to reference for us in The Game Changers. You go to actually read the study and you're 100% right. We're eating this awful slave convict prisoner diet the, the Greek term that they're being called, like the Greek word for barley men, is derogatory. It's a put down. It's like, hey, look at you convicts. You have to eat barley. <laughs> Steaks for us. Um, and that, you know, like the whole idea is, oh, oh I got the, the James Wilkes dude, the combatives instructor. I got injured and I couldn't, you know, I couldn't teach for six months. So I learned everything about nutrition and I, saw this study of the original uh, fighters, the gladiators. And you're 100% you're right. They're being fed the cheapest possible slave diet that the researchers, the anthropologists specifically say was to fatten them up. And so they could have really impressive wounds that wouldn't necessarily be mortal. Like I wanna slice you open and have a bunch of fat spill out instead of your blood so that hopefully I can sew you back up and get you back out there tomorrow to take a few more stabs in the belly before you die. So. Uh, utterly ridiculous. And then uh, I'm on the Game Changers website right now. And he says, this, this shocking truth, uh, discovery, led me on a five-year quest for the truth in nutrition, modeled after Bruce Lee's combat philosophy. Research your own experience. Absorb what is useful. Reject what is useless. And add what is specifically your own. Like, it's almost heretical for him to invoke Bruce Lee in this context. It's utter nonsense. Beginning with that mindset, I put every preconception I had about nutrition to the test. No, he didn't. He just formed new preconceptions and then traveled around to have his confirmation bias confirmed. He says, I traveled to four continents to meet with dozens of the world's strongest, fastest, and toughest athletes. Well, he didn't meet with any of the world's uh, strongest athletes, that's for damn sure. Patrick Baboumian is an utter fraud. He didn't meet with any of the fastest, the female sprinter featured in the Game Changers. Uh, her, her 2019 400 meter time is slower than 10 American high school girls in 2019. Not, no, pardon me, not high school girls, ninth grade girls. There are 10 ninth graders in the United States that ran a faster 400 meter time than Morgan Mitchell this year. But, I think he hit something when he said, is, is it the strongest? No, the fastest? No, but maybe the toughest. If you are such a tough-minded, brain-dead pudding head that you're willing to like just keep banging your head against the wall to try to succeed on a vegan diet, maybe you are tough. Like, you're stupid, but you're tough. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting about the, the sprinter, um, you know, because I, I had kind of looked at – somebody sent me the preview, and, I, and I'd known a number of those athletes, and I know that they it was basically a bunch of garbage propaganda. And, and, I, and I guess you said her performance has actually declined uh, as a vegan. Is that is that what, what you're saying, that she, she, her times have gone – she's gotten slower since she's changed? Exactly. So my, my latest series of videos, because – I saw that Game Changers docu or you know the trailer, same one that you saw, and I immediately said, "This is utter nonsense." And what happened 
for me on YouTube the last time that what the hell came out. Audio aspects do the health, do what the health. Just never like exposing the whole documentary for the nonsense that it is. So this time, I am going to do the mo more research than anybody else in the world on this documentary and publish it on my YouTube because this is utter nonsense and dangerous. I'm doing a series trick in the trailer. Number one, Patrick Baboonian. You know, they say, and this is what they try to get you, they, they try to get you thinking that he is the strongest man in the world, or at least at that level. They say, uh, Patrick Baboonian is a world record holding strongman. So you think, oh, he's a world record holding strongman. He must be amongst the strongest men in the world. But his world records didn't come at the world's strongest man competition or the Arnold Strongman Classic, which are the only two strongman competitions in the world that matter. Um, instead, what he's done is he's used like a publicist from PETA to hire the Guinness Book of World Records. So what you do is you pay an enormous fee. You pay an enormous fee for the Guinness Book of World Records to come out and give you a, a diploma or whatever that says, you're a world record holder. So one of his world records is holding a weight with outstretched arms. So he's holding this 20 kilo weight and he's supposed to have his arms perfectly straight. And he holds it for, I don't know, a minute and 30 seconds. The only problem is from the get go, his elbows are bent the entire time, but it's the Guinness Book of World Records. It doesn't matter. They're just there to collect his money, shoot a little TV show and say, good job. It's, it's like the Guinness Book of World Records is a total joke. Like uh, who's got the longest fingernails and what dog can walk balancing a cup of water on its head the furthest? It's utter, total and utter nonsense. So his other record is uh, in the yoke walk. And it says on the Game Changers website down here, let's see, Patrick Bone. here he is. Patrick Baboumian is a professional strongman and former Germany's strongest man with multiple world records, including front hold, that's the one I just talked about, keg lift, totally bogus, log lift, totally, in fact, Patrick Baboumian's personal best in the log lift could not get one rep of the Austrian Oak at the Arnold Classic. It's 430 pounds, and his all-time best is well below that. Like He couldn't get a single rep. It's 460 pounds, I think. He's like not even close to being able to do a single rep. Uh, in fact, now he's just a 40-year-old obese guy who doesn't compete in anything. Uh, and the super yoke. So the super yoke is another Guinness Book of World Records thing that he did where he's supposed to carry, it's like a 1,200-pound yoke, and he's going to carry it 10 meters. And is he doing this in a strongman competition? No, he's doing it at VegFest. No other competitors, just the Guinness Book of World Records there. So they have one angle of this yoke walk where they show him crossing the finish line and then he sets it down and then he rips off his weight belt and he grabs the microphone and he, sh he shouts out to all the veggie heads in the audience and he's just having a raw, raw, yeah, plant power. And in reality, if you go on YouTube, and find people that were in the audience that posted it, he picks up the yoke and then sets it down after a couple steps. So he goes about halfway in his 10 meters, sets it down, too heavy for him, picks it up again, and then finishes. And if you watch the Arnold Strongman Classic, as soon as you set down the yoke, you're disqualified. So the record is a total fabrication.
location. And just the nonsense of balance with this guy has never been invited to the Arnold Strongman, even though he's in the movie with Arnold, has never been invited to the world's strongest man. And he was trying to, you know, talk smack because Robert Ober said, you know, hey, there's no vegan strongman. Honestly, there's, there's no, we've never seen them. There is a guy named Patrick. I don't know about him. He probably set a record in the backyard, in his backyard. And then Patrick comes back with like, oh, well, I've never won world's strongest man, but you haven't either. The truth is Patrick's never been invited, but Robert Oberst actually finished eighth. Like Robert Oberst is depending on the year, a top 10, you know, strongest man in the world. Patrick is not even close to like a top 100. Nowhere even, in fact, now he doesn't do anything. And actually in his response video to Robert Oberst, he referenced that, oh, well, you know, we both haven't won the world's strongest man, but I won the teenage Mr. Germany competition for bodybuilding. Like totally and entirely changed the subject. And to make himself feel better, he's bragging about a competition that he won as a 19 year old meat eater. A bodybuilding competition, not a strongman competition, but a bodybuilding competition that he won as a 19 year old meat eater. So I did Patrick Baboumian already. Then you know him, American record holder, Kendrick Ferris. If you actually go to his Instagram and take a freeze frame from the, like he posted it on his own Instagram, but it's a freeze frame from the movie. I used it for my thumbnail on my video about him. Kendrick Ferris followed the same predictable pattern that I'm going to talk about with Morgan Mitchell in a second is you're near the peak of your performance. You're traveling up. You go again because somehow you're, what's the recipe for a vegan? Frustrated, gullible, not a critical thinker. So if you have those three traits, there's a good chance you could go vegan. So, you know, he's at, he's at or near the top of his athletic performance, goes vegan, not really sure when he stopped, when he gave up the whey protein, because Kendrick, you know, I, I think he gets confused about a lot of things. Um, one of the things that Kendrick believes about himself is that he is descendant from a lost tribe of Israel. So if anyone in the HPO audience wants to donate for Kendrick to get a 23andMe test, I think that would be kind. Or so we can put that to rest. But Kendrick goes vegan, sets the American world record for his weight class. That is not, no, pardon me, not, it can't be an American world record, the American record, which is still so far from the world record. So, yeah, I mean, you know, hey, Chris, it, I mean, it was kind of interesting because when he, when he, yeah, it was 377 kilos that he totaled. Correct. And that was only about two pounds, two kilos more than his previous best. So it's not like he had this dramatic improvement in performance. So he had already had, he had already owned the American record. So he just basically marginally moved up his record by a little bit. And then, and then as you know, he, he kind of, and then he just crashed after that. So it was kind of interesting. And, and the fact that he was probably still using whey protein, so getting animal protein, and the fact that he probably just cut out some junk food. So anyway, go ahead. Oh. Well, I think it gets even better than that, because if you actually do look at his eight year transformation, he goes up a weight class. So he's 20 kilos heavier. And then from his 2008 Olympics to the 2016 Olympics drops 10 pounds on his total. So he goes down a couple of kilos in his total from Beijing to Rio, despite being a whole weight class higher. And it's like, oh, cut out some junk food. If you actually freeze frame the trailer you will see that he has a tremendous gut. 
has clear gynecomastia and it's like that gyna where you can see it through the shirt because like the breast tissue is like creating this little like sweat shadow. So, oh, an extreme aging, like it's incredible how much older he looks. And this is something he posted on his own Instagram. So fatter, weaker, sicker, gyno, extreme aging. And then, you know, he, like an Elmer Fudd in the, the Game Changers trailer is like, I should have gone vegan a long time ago. No, you had by far your best Olympics when you actually looked like a Greek god 2008 in China to what you look like. Like I showed my wife the before and after photos and my wife was like, 2008, she's like, damn. And then 2016, 2017, she's like, oh, damn. Like incredible transformation. Yeah, and I then, yeah, he, Morgan. I think he's also gotten injured, injured his elbow shortly after the Olympics, and he's not done anything as well. I think he's pretty much done. I don't know if he's going to try to make the 2020 team. I haven't heard anything recently from him. I haven't seen him do anything in about three, three years. So I don't know if he's, you know, if he's got anything coming up. Yeah. Well, I think the, the, the only recent thing that he did was shoot the little piece in his gym for uh, the game changers. And actually, if you look at the, the, the Olympic trials where he set the American record, the two guys that finished second and third, their totals were better than Kendrick's total at the Olympics. So as an 18-month vegan, who knows when he went off the whey protein, he hits 377. By the time he gets to the Olympics, he's down 20 kilos. He's at like 357, which is below the weight that he did in China eight years earlier when he was a weight class lower. So he weighed 20 pounds less, did more weight in China, and the, the guys that didn't get to go to Rio because Kendrick took their spot, if they had just, just flatlined with their totals from the, uh, from the trials to the games, they would have beat because Kendrick bombed out so hard. And the, the thing that you can always see with vegans, and that's what they talk about on the Game Changers website, is like, oh, I, I traveled around and saw the, the toughest and the strongest and the fastest. No, you didn't. You absolutely did not. What you can do for vegans is find someone who is competing in a sport in a country where that sport is not popular or where there is a limited talent. So there's just an unlimited, you know, since like, I think the guy's name was like Tommy Kono. Since like the golden age of American weightlifting, there has been a limited talent pool of American lifters. Kendrick started weightlifting, you know, snatching and cleaning and jerking when he was 12. So of course he's going to get pretty good. Because no other American kids are doing that. Not good on a world-class level, but good on a national level for a country that doesn't care about it. And you go look at Morgan Mitchell, the sprinter from Australia. Once, let me click on her in the, in the Game Changers here on their website. So Game Changers lists her as a two-time 400-meter sprinting champion. I think she might be a three-time, but they say... Uh, Morgan Mitchell's two-time Australian 400-meter sprinting champion also represented Australia at the 2016 Summer Olympics. So, very predictable. Uh, she actually had a boyfriend in 2014, and the boyfriend saw, like, what the health or whatever the vegan documentaries that were out on the time at the time. That's, this is why these documentaries are so dangerous, because people actually fall for this shit. So, Morgan's boyfriend says, let's look at these documentaries, and she just snaps. A light bulb went on my just became vegan instantly. Well, predictably, she's a young woman. You know, you have this like 
three month to maybe 24 month window where maybe your performance won't crash that like little Carl Lewis window. So she set her personal best after going vegan. She was on her way there anyway. And then by the time she got to the Olympic games in 2016, she made it to uh, the semifinals. So the preliminary heats, it's, it's this around the world kumbaya Olympic thing. So in the preliminary heats, basically if you're a decent sprinter and you don't fall down, you'll make it to the semifinals. Semifinals, she ran, there's, there's three heats, eight, eight women per heat. She ran the 24th fastest time. So she finished eighth in her heat and 24th overall in the semifinal heat. The time that she ran in Rio would not have won the 2016 CIF championships. So a high school girl in California that same year ran faster than she did at the state championships. So that was her time in Rio and it's only gotten worse. In 2019, her most recent 400 meter, she ran 55.05. And in 2019, there were 10 ninth grade girls that ran sub 55. What, what was her best time? What was her, what did she peak at? Uh, she peaked at like 51 and change, like maybe 51.28 or something. And she's so, got four, four seconds. That's a, that's a hell of a, that's a well, huge difference. Well, if you think that like every second is 10 meters. Right. So I, mean, I have a huge slowdown. Yeah. Yeah. In my, in my new video, I actually love this. I took the Australian national championships where she ran the 5505. And you see Annalise Ruby Renshaw, who won the race, who only has 45,000 Instagram followers compared to Morgan Mitchell's 60 because she's not in a James Cameron documentary, even though she's much faster. And uh, Annalise crossing the finish line. And then Morgan is way back here. So she went from the fastest woman at the 400 in Australia to the seventh fastest. And the only woman that she beat was a 19-year-old girl whose best sport is actually skipping rope. This girl named Rebecca Bennett, teenager, who's like really into those like rope skipping competitions. That's the only girl she beat in the finals when she used to be the fastest woman in Australia at the 400. How and old is she? How old thing is she is, now? I'm she sure. actually, I, oh, 24 maybe. So the so woman that beat her by, you know. Yeah, so it can't, you, can't <laughs> put it off to, you can't put it off to being old, you know. It's not like. No, no, no. Oh, she, she should she, be. She's, She's she in her should prime. absolutely be peaking. In fact, the girl that beat her at 20 in the, in the Australian championships, the girl that beat her is two and a half years older than she is. And this is a girl that Morgan used to be, but she doesn't anymore as a vegan. Um, uh, what was that? Mm. Yeah, Chris. So, <clears throat> Oh, you, you, yeah, just going to add in, I think, I mean, you've highlighted some interesting things that I've thought about a lot from some of these films that have to do with like vegan lifestyle, like what the health conspiracy, and then the one coming out game changers. And it's like, to me, like the decision to eat a plant-based diet, whole food, plant-based, vegan, whatever you want to call it, that doesn't really bother me too much. Um, I'm all for people choosing what they want to eat. But when you get these like documentaries where they're making some claims that are so absurd. Like I think the ones that stick out the most are the, the, an egg is worth five cigarettes or cow belching is responsible for 51% of our greenhouse gas emissions. And then taking athletes who have some incredibly impressive resumes 
and prefacing in a way like this person has been a vegan their entire life. They ran these times when in reality they were at most a vegetarian who was consuming eggs and dairy and maybe fish and then went vegan for a year or two and had that kind of description of what you said, that steady decline, but they're banking on their previous PRs to kind of leverage their former self with their current self. You know, that's where I start to kind of get frustrated because it's like you said, that's where that, that's just plain unexcusable misleading at that point. It would be like me doing what I do nutritionally, going and winning a race and then saying, Hey, I'm a zero carb athlete. And that's what it, just because maybe for a few weeks out of the year, I follow a zero carb approach, you know? So like that, that's kind of the comparison I like to use. And I try to be careful about that with my own stuff, just because I can be like, I, my, my diet varies enough just because my training varies a lot. You know, I'm in peak training. I might be training 20 hours a week. I'm recovering. I might not be training at all. So my diet changes drastically depending on what part that is. So you can take one week and make it look like that's what I do all the time if you wanted to be deceptive. So I try not to do that sort of thing. And that's what I see some of these films doing. They're taking like a very small piece to the whole puzzle and putting a massive spotlight on it. But they're not telling you about the other pieces of the puzzle. They're not telling you about the history. They're not telling you about what they did before and all this other stuff. Is is that kind of like what you see in that stuff as well? I think it's way worse than that. I mean, if you actually do any real research, you find out that it is a total fraud. They're only trying to advance their agenda. So Morgan Mitchell can't beat an American high school girl. Patrick Boumian can't get invited to the world's strongest man. They're just simply not competitive with truly elite athletes. And, uh, when you actually tell their whole story, when you see their whole arc, Kendrick Ferris, not competitive at an Olympic level, only competitive in a sport that Americans don't care about at a national level. So when you actually feel the whole story, the whole thing is massive misrepresentation to advance this agenda that, you know, Dr. Barnard has said in one of his talks, I dream of a day when eating meat is the same as smoking cigarettes, when that sick, disgusting meat eater has to finish his drumsticks outside of the office because you're not allowed to smoke in the office anymore. That's where these people want us to go. And for everyone that's not a brain dead pudding head, for everyone that can watch one of my YouTube videos, you know, another example we haven't talked about yet is Bryant Jennings. This dude undefeated fights Vladimir Klitschko for the heavyweight championship of the world. Luke goes 12 rounds, loses a unanimous decision. That's his first career loss. Goes vegan afterwards because you're frustrated, you're gullible, you're, you know, you're looking for answers, you're not thinking critically. And from one career loss to boxing legend Vladimir Klitschko, he now has three losses, including getting knocked out by two nobodies. Like, not only is he incurring the damage, you know, the brain damage of veganism, but He's literally taking more brain damage as he tries to continue a heavyweight boxing career on a vegan diet. Um, the only world, you know, and that's, you talked about a little bit is uh, there are some world-class athletes that are maybe like plant-based adjacent. And then you can dig into their stories also. But I want to be really clear right now, and that is I am not anti-vegan. I am 100% for vegans finding their way to true health for them 
ending the gullibility and the frustration, the lack of critical thinking so that they can get healthy. And, you know, Dr. Baker is the pied piper of ex-vegans. You know, these people that, you know, so gullible, so frustrated, and then they feel duped and then they immediately switch, oh, I'm full carnivore. And I would love for people to just like stop at meat base. Like, like, oh, yeah, 25 to 50% of my calories from complete animal protein. 65 to 100% of my calories from meat. Like you can go full carnivore, but maybe you don't need to. But these people just, you know, vegans in the 20 teens are the goth kids of the 1990s. They're just, they're, they feel frustrated or they feel like misfits. And I think in reality, like probably all of us are misfits in some way, but they need to latch on to something. There's this great book by Eric Hoffer called The True Believer. And it's how, you know, you know, for these people that just latch on to veganism or communism or fascism or some other mass movement, it's people that absolutely don't want to think. They want to get all the answers and then they want to have like a scapegoat. Oh, it's all their fault. Someone, a vegan on YouTube the other day called me a radical omnivore. What? <laughs> like, I, I, you know, like I am definitely a proponent of a meat-based diet, you know, at least. 50%. I mean, like the original work that Cordain and O'Keefe did on the paleo diet was talking about like 65 to 68% of your calories from animal sources. Like that's a great place to start. But to even think that there is such a thing as a radical omnivore, like you have to be a real brain dead pudding head vegan. And the thing is, we, there's only one wrong answer to this test. The only wrong answer you know, obviously standard American diet, junk food diet, that doesn't work. But if we're talking like in the realms of like, we're trying to get healthy, veganism absolutely doesn't work. Even if you look at all the amazing athletes or less than amazing athletes in the game changers, you see that like, it's not working for, for them. So vegans, you know, if we can expose the lies on those people, great, good. Kendrick Ferris, Morgan Mitchell, Bryant Jennings, uh, Patrick, but like, how about Novak Djokovic? Novak Djokovic is legitimately the best athlete on the face of earth. This guy has made $136 million in prize money playing men's professional tennis. Arguably, arguably globally, one of the most popular sports and certainly one of the most competitive, you know, People that are on, I would say people that are on Novak Djokovic's level, Roger Federer, Rafa Nadal-ish, like I think Novak's better than those guys. And then maybe like a Floyd Mayweather in terms of a one-on-one -on -one prize money sport. Novak Djokovic is incredible. So look at Novak, because I just had a putting head put this comment up on my YouTube. Oh man, Serena Williams, the GOAT, the greatest of all time. Novak Djokovic, the GOAT, the greatest of all time. Tom Brady, the GOAT, the greatest of all time. None of those people are vegan. None of those people go a full year without animal. Well, let's talk about Novak. Let's just focus it on Novak. So like 2010, Novak Djokovic just cannot cross the finish line at the Australian Open. He gets beat by a guy who was much less skilled than him. And he couldn't concentrate. He couldn't focus. His nose was clogged. Like he just didn't have his performance optimized. Novak Djokovic, after that, gives up dairy and you know some people they're on the carnivore diet they do great with dairy some people don't do great with dairy 
So he gives up dairy. But more importantly, he gives up nightshades. So, you know, these, these plant foods that have phytotoxins that are poisoning him. And he gives up all wheat. He goes on a gluten-free, dairy-free, nightshade-free diet. And immediately has this breakthrough where he starts winning grand slam after grand after grand slam. Like all of a sudden he's unbeatable. It was all about Roger and Rafa. And they just entirely took a back seat to how dominant Novak Djokovic became. Then, uh, I don't know when Novak starts dating or when he gets married to his now wife, but she's plant-based and wants Novak to go plant-based as well. So there are two years of Novak's career that are entirely missing. He wins no slams. I don't think he even wins any tournaments. He like bombs out of Indian Wells. Um, and he's just injured. And he's in the tabloids for all the wrong reasons. He fires his coaching staff. Like his life is in turmoil for two years. And those are the two years where the world's greatest athlete tried to go vegan. And now, you know, he's already invested, I think, actually in, in some plant stuff. And he's already an executive producer on the film, The Game Changers. But Novak's story is one of a guy who went back to, and full disclosure, Novak and I have a mutual friend. Novak has no clue who I am, I'm sure. But Novak and I have a mutual friend. I've got a Novak Djokovic tennis racket downstairs. Like most people will put it in a frame. My tennis bags actually use it. Um, I have... Novak's book, Serve to Win, was handed from Novak to one of my friends, to me. It's all about Novak going gluten-free and dairy-free. So he's trying to optimize his diet. He crosses the line from really what you would call paleo into vegan. Performance does nothing but suffer for two years. And then I find out from my friend that Novak is eating meat all the time, that he's definitely... And it, it's, you know, like, I don't know how much, it's definitely public that Novak is no longer vegan. He said in the press, he's like, no, my wife is not uh, controlled diet anymore. Is not even vegan herself because she's pregnant. So we're always hearing, oh, you know, vegan diets are healthy for people at all stages of life. No, they're not. And even Novak Djokovic's vegan wife won't be vegan while pregnant or breastfeeding. So it's just absolutely insane that three vegans can get together in their little secret cabal and tell us that a vegan diet's healthy for everyone. No, it's absolutely not. So anyway, Novak goes back to eating all the time and now he's unstoppable again. He just won Wimbledon and at one of his Wimbledon press conferences, uh, the reporter goes, hey, my daughter keeps asking me about this film, The Game Changers, and she wants me to ask you about it. He goes, are you vegan? And Novak goes, well, you know what? I don't like labels, but I'm plant-based. I don't like labels, but I'm plant-based. Plant-based is a label, but Novak just can't <laughs> take the label of veganism because he's not a vegan. He eats meat and fish all, all the time. And so the only wrong answer to this test, what is a healthy diet, is veganism. That is the wrong answer. You can be plant-based paleo like Novak Djokovic and be the greatest athlete of all time or the greatest tennis player of all time and one of the greatest athletes in the world. But he is plant-based paleo. He's getting 50 or more percent of his calories from plants. If they're the right, don't bother him. It's not gluten or nightshades that he had a terrible time with. You can be the world's best athlete on that diet. Absolutely. 
you know, none of us, nobody needs to be 100% carnivore to be the world's best athlete. In fact, you might find that maybe you get some performance gains by adding in some rice or some sweet potatoes. The world's strongest man, like, oh, we all eat pretty much the same thing. We eat lots of meat and lots of rice or lots of meat and lots of potatoes. Those are the things that we eat. Um, so it's just an utter nonsense and deception to think that Novak, that a vegan diet did anything for Novak. He went dairy-free, gluten-free, nightshade-free, became the best athlete in the world. Went vegan, dropped to number 22 in the rankings, his lowest ranking since he was a teenager. Went back to eating meat, went back to plant-based paleo with a, a meat focus, with a, you know enough meat to sustain him. And now he's the best athlete in the world again. Uh, someone said, you know, Williams. Yeah, Serena Williams eats vegan for some meals or tournaments or whatever. And then, so, so Serena Williams is only vegan when she's not eating fried chicken. Like she's vegan and then she's like, oh, I love fried chicken. I'll eat this, eat this, eat this. Okay, I'm gonna go vegan again. It's total nonsense. Tom Brady, Tom Brady, terrible dad body. You know, it seems like his wife is controlling his diet. He's legitimately the greatest football player of all time. Not because of his diet, probably in spite of his diet, uh, most of the year, if you look at his awful dad bod, like no one's like, oh man, I want to sign up for TB12 so I can take my shirt off and look like Tom Brady. No one is thinking that. But it, for other reasons, is legitimately the best football player ever and is also not vegan. He is a meat eater. So there's zero evidence that you can even, you know, that anyone could sustain a vegan diet with any level of performance from like 24 months. You might yep. hit a PR or set a record or win something in that window, but after that, straight downhill. Yeah, we had, uh, I, I'm sure you're familiar with Tim Sheath. He was, he was originally slated to be in the movie and we had him on, uh, on the podcast last week and it was kind of the same sort of story. He, you know, he legitimately felt better for a short period of time and then he just saw, you know, compl you know decline. And then that's why he left and, that, and that's why he was no longer, you know, in the movie because, uh, you know, and, and you wonder if you watch these people in that movie, what happens to them in five years? If we watch all these well, people closely, you know, we're already seeing some of the effects. Yeah, well, I mean, Morgan Mitchell, so much, and the thing about Morgan Mitchell, part of the reason she's running so much slower in the 400 now is because the coaches are like, Morgan, you're just not fast enough for the 400. Let's try to train you for the 800. And then she goes to like a local track meet and gets third place in the 800. And she's so happy. She actually talked about, it's a shame I didn't have it in my YouTube video because I didn't find the article until after I uh, uploaded it. But Morgan Mitchell talked about being legitimately depressed and being plagued by off the track issues in 2017. Like, oh, my performance is declining so much. My coaches want to kick me out of running the 400 because I'm so slow. Well, have a stake in a hug. And that's the real, like, not against vegans i want them to have a stake in a hug i'm against veganism this nonsensical dogma that a lot of people subscribe to in their late teens or early 20s and there's a a guy on youtube his name joey schler and he had this this youtube channel on the rise should have been a youtube star went vegan for a year barely gained any muscle in an entire year with all the vegan supplements gained mostly fat and then had a poke bowl and said, I can't be vegan anymore. It just, it does not work for me. And then 
you know, the, the vegan response. I was like, oh, he was never vegan. He was only plant-based. And that's why I really, I really like the idea of carnivore saying, I was never carnivore. I was only meat-based. Like I felt fine having a glass of wine. Like there's, I don't feel like I'm, like I'm cheating on myself as a person. Like a third of all vegans and vegetarians get drunk and eat animal food. It's just, that's a fact because their bodies are so craving the nourishment that as soon as they lower their inhibitions, the first thing they want to do is go get a chicken burrito bowl. So uh, let me see if I had some notes here, if there was any other person to touch on. Oh, I think I'm going to be, I think I will actually debate vegan gains at some point in the near future. The dude is just totally lost, totally sad, and really just needs a stake and a hug. And one of the great things he said, he was, because when I see him come on in one of his, his YouTube live streams, I'll just go in there, check it out, uh, throw a few comments in there. He's like, well, if Chris and I got in a fight, I would just pick him up and throw him on his head because he's like legitimately half the size of <laughs> It was like, Richard claims to be 6'3", no reason not to believe him, says he's about 230, so about a, a present build. It looks like on his current diet. And what Richard doesn't know is I, I always tell people I'm six, three, cause there's no point to add, well, I'm really six, three and three quarters. Most people, I'm six, four. Like, I don't need to say that. Like I'm six, three, whatever. It's fine. And I'm 230 pounds and, and, or two, I, I stay between like 210 and 230, 220 ish, 223 this morning. So Richard thinks he's twice as big as me based off of like, I don't know, one photo we saw when I was fasted. I don't know. And then he throws out this, uh, uh, this like allegation. So I have a, an answer for him on that as well. But uh, I want to have the, the debate proposition be, Richard, please prove to me that a vegan diet is optimal for the health, wellness, and performance of every individual human on this planet. And if you can do that, I'll go vegan for a month. If you can't do that, you have to get a steak and a milkshake. And we'll see if he shows up. And then the other thing he always wants to do is he always wants to fight me because he thinks he's twice as big as me. When it turns out, not not only am I eight years older in my mid-30s now, but I'm bigger and younger and faster and leaner than Richard. So should be fun. Should be a fun like couple couple of weeks here setting this up. Are you are you gonna go on his channel to do that or how are you guys setting that up? Uh, no, I would actually love to do it. Uh, I think you guys know Elise Parker, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we had her on the show a while back, actually. Okay. Yeah, her boyfriend is Andrew Morgan, Drew Morg on YouTube. And I specifically said, like, let's do the debate there. So he can set it up and host it. And it'll be, and I have him moderate. So he's a, a long-term vegan, like four and a half year vegan that is now more carnivore meat-based. And seems like a fair guy to me. So the, the only thing is like with any of Richard's studies, you just actually go look at the data. Like one thing he loves to do is say, oh, well, look at this, the, the MRFIT data. I call it the Mr. Fit data. Published in New England Journal of Medicine, 1989. Shows that the lower you get your cholesterol, your total cholesterol, the less chance you have of dying of cardiovascular disease. But if you just look two columns over, your all-cause mortality goes through the roof as soon as you dip your total cholesterol below 140. And that's the case, is whenever you actually look at the data in the studies that the vegans reference, it's total nonsense. 
Um, there's another one about like this direct linear relationship between LDLC and, and cardiovascular disease. And nobody's ever looked at or controlled for TGHDL ratio. So if we can accept that we want our triglycerides as low as possible, we want our HDL as high as possible, just like Dr. Reven talked about when he coined syndrome X or metabolic syndrome, that no study that ever you know, shows any correlation between LDA disease ever accounts for TGHDL ratio. And the vegans all have awful TGHDL ratios. In fact, Mike the vegan, famous YouTuber, his TGHDL ratio is worse than President Trump's. And President Trump is, at his last physical, was a man in his 70s, borderline obese with mild heart disease. So I think whatever you think about President Trump politically, you can at least agree that he's maybe a paragon of health. Like he's maybe not who we should be aiming for. In terms of like that's my health goals, President Trump. But Mike the vegan, as a 28-year-old vegan, has a worse TGHDL ratio than President Trump. Um, so it's it's just nonsense compounded on nonsense. And when you actually take the blinders off and look at the stuff that they want to show you, like a study that Mike the vegan wants to talk about is uh, it's industry-funded research. Like all of the the people on it have huge grants from Pfizer, Merck, whatever, and it's all about oh yeah, we gotta put everyone on statin, so everyone should get their uh, LDL below 100. But actually, these researchers that are being funded by AstraZeneca, Merck, whatever, said actually it appears that non-HDL cholesterol is a better marker. And the thing is, non-HDL cholesterol takes into account your VLDL or your triglyceride. We know triglycerides are important. We know it's TG-HDL ratio that is the best predictor of heart disease. So even if you don't count HDL, you look at just non-HDL cholesterol, which incorporates VLDL triglycerides. The researchers that are funded by Big Pharma say, oh, we'll get those under 130. Like 130 is a good cutoff point. And people that are under 130 non-HDL cholesterol, those were very healthy people. And the thing is, you can go full carnivore. You know, I on full carnivore for like a month, like nothing but beef and butter. I got my uh, TGHD, I got all my blood work done. Uh, triglycerides under like 37, tri, uh, HDL over 80, 83. So my TGHDL ratio is like rock bottom, under 0.5. And you can have that on a fully carnivorous diet and still have, depending on your activity, LDL cholesterol that is like 119-ish. So if you look at all these studies, everything, everything lines up that you want your HDL around 80, you want your triglycerides around 40, your LDL is really irrelevant, but you can get a good looking total cholesterol and according to the Mr. Fit data, would be like 160 to 219 is the sweet spot. So you get higher, you get a little bit more all-cause mortality. If you go under 140, your all-cause mortality spikes tremendously. And that's where Mike the vegan is. He's like well below 140, so 107. So his all-cause mortality is like through the roof. And all he can do is go on YouTube and brag about, like, look how low my LDL is. Or the most dangerous vegan doctor, probably, not the Sultan of Sarcopenia, but Garth Davis. This guy is a total pudding head. He, uh, 
he blocked myself and Ted Naiman on Twitter probably like five years ago when we were just like giving this, giving him a little bit of shit. Uh, so maybe like after what the health came out. But this guy takes a look at fully raw Christina. This is a vegan YouTuber who tries to be fully raw. Just pouring down smoothies all day long. Looks at fully raw Christina's blood work and says, oh, you're never going to have a heart attack. You're so healthy. Meanwhile, you pan off the, it actually has her blood work. Yeah, her LDL is rock bottom. Her VLDL and her triglycerides are off the chart. So it's like, it doesn't matter what the truth is to these people. It's only promoting their agenda, selling more books, uh, getting to participate in ban the bacon marches in Washington, D.C. So that's what I'm most strongly for is the truth. And I'll see comments on my YouTube because I get really passionate uh, on YouTube. People be like, oh, Chris, you're triggered. I'm, that, that's not triggered. Triggered is when your feelings are hurt. The lies that the vegans tell don't hurt my feelings. I just want to set the record straight. I want to get to the truth. I want people to be able to look their best and feel their best and be their best. I want them to have a great TGHDL ratio and low blood pressure or healthy blood pressure and great glycemic control. I want them to actually be healthy. And you're never going to actually be healthy. I mean, and all you have to do is look. All you have to do is take the blinders off and look at these people. But you guys already know all that. I just want to say, I mean, thank you guys for having me on. If there's anything else you guys want to touch on, please let me know. But uh, it's really been a pleasure talking to you guys. Yeah, Chris, if you want to plug like your social media handles and your YouTube channel, we'll also put that stuff in the show notes too. But thanks a bunch for coming on the show. Okay, awesome. Yeah, my Instagram is at Krugerbody. So K-R-U-G-E-R-B-O-D-Y. Uh, I do one-on-one -on -one remote coaching for people, slide up in my DMs. I usually have a few spots open. I try to cap it at 40 so I can make sure that everyone is getting all the attention they need uh, when it comes to implementing beasting, feasting, and fasting and finding out what really works for them. Uh, then the other place to find me is obviously on YouTube. And actually for all the HPL listeners, they can go to Kruger Body, same spell, K-R-U-G-E-R-B-O-D-Y.com, KrugerBody.com slash secret. And if they leave me their email, I will send them the free version of my Beasting, Feasting, and Fasting program. So that's got like cheat sheet, PDFs, uh, a couple videos to get you started on your beasting, on working out, doing some core exercises. And then, you know, they'll be on my email list. They can get the newsletter and find out more about my 70-day challenge and one-on-one coaching. Uh, so yeah, at KrugerBody.com on Instagram. Uh, really love what you guys are doing. Spreading the message keeps me fired up. Um, and thank you guys. Thank you so much for having me. Sean, I think you might be on mute. You're right. I was on mute. <laughs> did you uh, did you say where you were? Where are you at physically? Are you in California? Or are you in Seattle? Where are you? Yeah, I'm. I'm in Southern California right now. I was actually talking with Zach before you got on, but uh, I had a big personal training business in Los Angeles. And basically, business was going to shoot drones uh, in Northern Ireland for like almost two, so like a year and a half plus. Sir. But uh, my short to medium term plan is we're going to be moving back to Los Angeles and opening a gym. So we're just squaring things away. 
way putting together the right investor package, but we're going to do a, a small gym that is really about training people for athletic performance. You know, the stuff I talk about, look your best, feel your best. Feel your best. Um, I think you're in Orange County now, right? That's right. Yeah. I'm, 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 so I'm not too far from where you'd be, I guess. Yeah. Cool. Well, I, anytime you're doing uh, the meetups or whatever, you know, I've seen uh, William Schufeld down there with you having a good time throwing the, throwing the beyond meat patties in the trash can and stuff like that. So yeah, I'd love, love to be a part of that. All right, Chris. Perfect. Perfect. Well, I, I got to go run into a consult as well. So thanks a bunch awesome. guys, Zach, I'll talk to you soon. All right, guys, take care. All right. Okay. Thanks. Hey folks, human performance outliers podcast is growing. And due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.